You are listening to DNA Discoveries, Stories of Finding Family. I'm Edward Lillard. Happy New Year. In these early days of January, I'm excited to release our first episode of 2024 for DNA Discoveries. My hope and goal is to be able to release one episode a month in the first week of the month throughout the year. In order to do so, though, I need to find guests. And those guests can be people like you who are listening. I'm willing to bet you listen to DNA Discoveries because in some way you have been impacted by an autosomal DNA test kit. If you have been listening for a while or maybe you are a new listener, I'd encourage you to consider reaching out to me at dnadiscoveriespodcast at gmail.com or by going to the show website, dnadiscoveries.fireside.fm and using the contact form there. It's helpful if you share a tidbit of your story and your initial contact, and then I'll follow up quickly thereafter. In this new year, I hope to grow the podcast even more. Last year was a tremendous year of growth and listenership, and I'll begin posting on the DNA Discoveries Facebook page. So be sure to like and follow that page too. And finally, to help us grow, it is as simple as you, the listener, heading over to Apple Podcasts, rating the podcast, I'm hoping for five stars, and leaving a review too. This lets people know the show and the stories here are worth listening to. There are many podcasts out there vying for our precious time. I'm honored that you have made DNA Discoveries one of those podcasts. I'm excited for 2024 and what it will bring. And I'm even more excited to share today's interview with author Barbara Lane. I really enjoyed my conversation with her during the show. And after the recording, we stayed on Zoom for another half hour talking. It's not a story necessarily about DNA, but it is one of finding family. And it's a story worth telling. I hope you enjoy. Today on DNA Discoveries, Stories of Finding Family, I'm probably going to be looking at the second half of our show title, Finding Family. Of course, we know that happens through DNA Discoveries, but sometimes you come across stories that you think are worth telling, and uh, and so they're stories of finding family, whether or not DNA was involved. And today I'm going to be speaking with the Reverend Barbara Lane, who integrates her life experience of being a foster child, a sister, a wife, a mother, a grandmother, entrepreneur, speaker, child advocate, educator, and ministerial counselor and author into her writing. She is the author of a new work called Broken Water, an Extraordinary True Story. And it's really a memoir of her own life telling her story about family abuse and separation from family and then being reunited with her family uh, once again as well. So I think it's a great story and I'm looking forward to speaking with her today. So thanks so much, Barbara, for joining me for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this and sharing not only my story, but my 10 other sisters. Yeah. So um, first of all, you, you write uh, this extraordinary true story. That's the subtitle mm -hmm. called Broken Water. What's the story behind Broken Water? Why that title? How does mm. water become broken? Mm, I think that in many ways, water can be broken. Um, I chose this title so the reader can make 
their own meaning from something as powerful as water and how it can be broken. Of course, as a woman having had three children, I am very familiar with breaking water. And my mother ended up having 13 children in total. So there's that uh, correlation. Also, I love water, rivers, oceans, you know, waves break, you know, uh, rivers uh, break through different channels. And there's just a lot of power in water that's broken. Yeah, so that obviously makes sense with that common idiom that people say. You see it all the time on television, you know, my mm -hmm. water broke. For example, <laughs> Virgin River, just uh, on their Christmas mm -hmm. show, uh, the show on Netflix that so many people probably watch. Uh, there's one character. She's been pregnant for, you know, the whole duration of a season. She has twins and there it is, Christmas Eve. Her water breaks and Mel mm -hmm. has to deliver the two infants and so so yeah oh, I, i'll have to watch that <laughs> oh yeah so mm -hmm. broken water and mm -hmm. um now this is the story of your own life it's the story about as you mentioned your 10 other sisters yeah. it's the story of reconnecting so um maybe just could you paint a little picture about your family and maybe the family of origin so how is mm -hmm. it that 11 sisters are mm -hmm. born, the water is broken, but then you end up separated uh, mm -hmm. in your life. Mm -hmm. So um, I was born in the projects of St. Louis uh, City. We were pretty poor. Uh, my mother kept having babies. And um, when I was three, she decided that she was quite pretty and started having boyfriends. And one particular boyfriend uh, really caught her eye and she had in the interim made our father move out. I had two older sisters that were already married and out of the home. Now, father, we're going back in time. This is the time when women didn't drive. This is a time when women didn't have license to drive and, and didn't know how to drive. And when they, they were pretty confined to the home, right? Taking care of the home and having babies. And these were my two older sisters who were married and out of the home. So they didn't know quite what was going on in the home with the boyfriends coming in and out and things like that. One particular December in St. Louis, uh, particularly cold, and I've checked this out, it was probably one of the colder uh, winters in St. Louis ever. She decided it was time to take off with this boyfriend. She turned the heat off, sold all the furniture, uh, took our youngest sister at the time, who was a seven-month-old, with her and abandoned the rest of us in that apartment. Now, my two older sisters didn't know that was happening. Um, we were there three days before a neighbor kind of figured out, wait, something's wrong, and called the neighborhood priest. Um, it was Holy Guardian Angel, I think, was the parish there. To, to This is happening. And, and so he sent social workers out who gathered us and brought us to uh, an orphanage in St. Louis with St. Dominic's Italian Orphanage. Um, and seven of us went there. One snuck out and ran away. So she escaped the orphanage experience. I think she was like 14, uh, 13 or 14. But the rest of us, we ended up in the orphanage. Now, you would think, people have asked me, how traumatic was it for you to have that mother loss? It wasn't for me at that point in my life. I, I'm imagining she paid very little attention to me, but my sisters, on the other hand, must have played with me like I was a doll, and they loved me. They just 
pampered me. So when we were taken and put in the orphanage, I was still with my sister. So I was perfectly fine with that. It, my sisters were terribly traumatized. The older sisters were terribly traumatized by this loss. My trauma was when I watched them leave one by one. And I didn't know where they were going. So that's kind of the, the birth of the story of Broken Water. Um, and then, needless to say, we were pretty much all separated through foster care placements. My sister Kay, who's 18 months older than I, we were both placed in a particular home. And you can't make this up, Father. You cannot make this up. We were placed in the home of a mafia grunt. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. So um, it was a very um, power over kind of home. We experienced every kind of abuse you can imagine within that home. Um, he was very charismatic. So he convinced the social workers and my two older sisters that we were better off left there. We were doing fine until, you know, we spoke to a sister or someone inquired about us. So he succeeded in cutting us off completely from social workers, sisters, any intervention. And there we stayed. I was three and a half and my sister was three, five. We stayed there till we grew up. So it was uh, not a nice experience at all. So you're saying you grew up in the home of an individual from the mafia? Yes, sir. <laughs> you oh, can't wow. make it up. You can't. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I had my green eyes and at the time reddish hair. She would try to tell people we came from Northern Italy, but I didn't look anything like them at all. So yeah. Interesting. Wow. You know, it's uh, this uh, kind of similar, but not really at the same time. You know, when I was, when I was just a teenager, there was this mm -hmm. really popular book called A Child Called It. It was by Yes. And yeah. was, uh, you know, that book, I still have memories and impressions of mm -hmm. it in my mind, mm -hmm. partly because I kind of related a little bit to some of the, some of the events in oh. Dave Meltzer's life from yeah. my childhood upbringing, mm. etc. that, that we won't <sighs> go to, but if people are yeah. read, they're wondering what's that mean? And maybe one day I'll write a memoir and uh, share yeah. some of the experiences of my childhood. But but, you know, you read something like Dave Pelzer's A Child Called Ed, and you're like, can this be really true? And so, you know, in your book, Broken Water, you have to put the subtitle, An Extraordinary True Story, because who's going to believe that a mother would leave her children, turn the heat off and run away? And then, you know, to hear the next part of this story that you were taken in and raised uh you know, throughout your life by, by a member of the mafia, you know, that is an extraordinary, uh, story, yes. uh, which, yeah. which is true in your own life. Right. Right. It is true. Yeah. So your, your mother takes off, she goes with this, uh, this boyfriend. So, so obviously she separated from your father. Is that right? Yes. She had made him leave, um, from, see, I was too young to remember. This is stuff I've pieced together after reunited and learning the story. She had made him leave. And, um, once he left, she, she started having a variety of boyfriends come into the apartment. And then this one that she left with, we wondered if he wasn't the pimp. I will never know but it's quite possible that he convinced her to take that direction in her life. Um, and that we didn't fit into that, the rest of us kids. So. so you as children are sent to a foster care system. 
Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't the foster care system look for your <laughs> biological father? Or was it because you all didn't know, you all didn't know who your father was, and so you know they couldn't find him? Or why- uh, yeah, where did he go? Right, what yeah. was up with him? Well, as the story goes, uh, this is just getting really um, uh, uncomfortable, perhaps for some people. But the truth is that he likewise had uh, affairs and caught syphilis. Back in the day of the 50s, there was no treatment. It goes to your brain, you become somewhat demented. And so he was in that state. And the social workers knew that there was no way he was capable of taking care of any of us. Although I will have to say, based on my older sisters, that never meant he had a deep love for all of his daughters. But you know, this is all a case of infidelity and drinking. And that's what happened to that family, my family. So when you were with the individuals from the mafia that became your parents, you obviously <laughs> called them mom and dad? It was very hard to, but yes, we did. We, You know, a, a daughter in a home of a mafia is a treasured item, is protected, not from the inside of that home, in our case, especially, but from the outside world. You never, ever say anything against the daughter of a mafia. Now, he was a grunt, so he was the lower level of the mafia tier. He did the dirty work, evidently, but he still had that protective kind of coding around us. So I'm sharing that because there was no one to tell. There was no one to go to, no one to save you, so to speak, from from this environment and cut off from my sisters. There was no no interaction at all you were we were just stuck there just stuck he was very violent and and would threaten us often with a gun wow so i'm assuming you as children that you ended mm -hmm. up off to school so yes like what was that like for you as uh, a child as a kid in school you befriend Mm -hmm. you befriend others so Mm -hmm. uh, they probably Maybe they do, but I don't know. Like, did they come over to your home? But it'd be hard because you wouldn't be able to have a confidant. You can't share some of these things, especially uh, these more private things. Uh, right, who right. your father was. So, you know, um, in our home, we were not allowed to have friends over. We were not allowed to go over to friends' homes. We were allowed to see them at school because we had to. But when you're raised like that, Father, I became very quiet. I just didn't say anything to anyone because I guess in my childhood, that that time from three on, I found it took the best care of me. Maybe I didn't go flying across the room quite as often because I was quiet. And so to think that I would tell somebody uh, a friend at school that I just maybe had lunch with or kicked the ball around, maybe on the playground or a nun or a lay teacher. There's no way. There's no way. I was petrified to tell anybody anything. So I, contrary to how I am today, I became incredibly quiet, just very, very still. So, and no one paid attention. That's the point. There were so many clues if someone would have paid attention that it's not normal that a child can't go out and play it's not normal that a child can't have a friend over there were so many clues and things but I'm sharing that because sadly in my experience in my career and the work I've done with abused kids it hasn't changed all that much (laughs) and I really wish it would 
but there's a lot of isolation still involved with with abused kids that they who are they going to, what are they going to do? Who are they going to go tell? If I told someone, would he have shot my sister? I wouldn't have put it past him. So, you know, you are just mm. stuck. It's a very, very difficult place for a child to be. There were 11 sisters. You had yeah. 10 other sisters. Yeah. You go off to this foster care. Yeah. And then, you know, one by one, you all get separated. So, uh, mm -hmm. As you get separated, there's no contact then in your childhood. Uh, is that right? There was there was one visit, and I don't even know why it happened or why they allowed it to happen. Could be the social workers. I, I need to express that my two older sisters would have taken us, but the system at the time told them this. Even though we were siblings, you can't have them. Your house is too small. Mm. You know, so there we were, and the the best they could do was try to oversee that we got good placements. And, and they did do that. And we had one visit, I don't know, maybe I was five or six. And I remember it to this day, it was such a treasure that several of the sisters were over by my eldest sister's home. And I got to see them, you know, one time. And then my eldest sister moved. She got a divorce. There was some kind of bad stuff there. And then and then that contact was lost. And my foster mother and foster father went out of their way to make that happen by telling them when they did call, how are the kids? They don't live here anymore. We don't know what happened to them. And they literally believed them because on the outside, they just seemed like such one. We were even in the post-dispatch paper, took a picture of us with our foster parents to convince other parents, other people look how loving this home is for these foster kids and please become a foster parent. I mean, it was just like this big whole mm. fake everything that you lived in that, you know, messed with your mind. It really did. But um, yeah, was that experience? So that one time that you all were mm -hmm. gathered together and mm -hmm. saw each other, do you remember how old you were? I, you know, it's hard to remember, but I might've sure. been five, I think. Okay. Yeah, was you that know, it's still little. Yeah, was that something that you just held on to then mm -hmm. at, you know, when you're 10, when you're 15, like think you know you have other family out there, you yeah. don't see them. Like, did you just treasure that memory? Father, that one. And honestly, this speaks to the power of a positive attachment and bonding experience that I had as an infant with my older sisters. At three and a half, I knew all their names in order of birth. And I refused to accept the fact that I had lost them. So, you know, as a little one, you play fantasy games in your mind. I would have pretend tea party with them, talking to each one of them, is refusing to accept the fact that I had lost them. I absolutely refused to accept that. I couldn't mention them in the foster home because you'd get in big trouble, big, big trouble. So you couldn't talk about them, but I kept them in my mind and in my heart. And that visit when I was five, however old I was, was like an affirmation of the truth that I believed in my fantasy, having tea with my sisters. Yeah. So how many of you were together in that foster home with the uh, mafia member? Just myself and my one older sister who's 18 months older than I. 
And then did they, did that family, did they take in other foster kids? So no other individuals in the mix or you're the only two? Yes. And did they ever adopt you or you were yes. in the foster care? In foster care until I was 16 and about two weeks before my eldest sister turned to 18. And here's the reason. Once they finalized the adoption in Missouri, our files were closed. We could not get into them to find our biological sisters. Mm. And then once my sister turned 18, they kicked her out of the house. <laughs> and then did that happen to you when you turned 18? They kicked you? No, I stayed quiet. I mean, I, I had tons and years of therapy to learn how to speak up for myself and how to share this story and how important it is that people understand this happens and to be aware of it. But no, I stayed in that home till I married my husband at 19. And I guess, you know, I'm thinking, was there any like, after you left, you married your husband, mm -hmm. did you have contact with the mafia family then afterwards or kind I of? I did like, because... Yes, it's so bizarre, and I, I recognize it now. But to survive that, you know, we do all kinds of funny things with our brain. What I chose to do was to try to live uh, the fantasy of a good home. Like, you know, to try to uh, dissociate is the word um, that you would use from what was occurring and and except the fact that the world thinks I'm so lucky. I'm in such a loving home and weren't they wonderful to take me in. And I decided to believe that um, until I got out of the home and that started cracking in all kinds of ways where, you know, the reality of life had to come through. Thank goodness. Cause then I could, I could deal with it and heal all of that. And eventually wrote a letter to my foster father and said, you know, I just, I don't wish you any harm. But I want you out of my life. Don't call me. Don't contact me. Just stay away. And he tried to bribe me with money and this and that. And then he had the rel his relatives call and say, how can you do that to your father? Wow. I learned, you know, you just don't even have to address that. You just do what you know and your soul needs to heal. And so that's what I did. So you marry at the age of 19 yeah. and you separate, as you just shared, from, from that family. At mm -hmm. what point then, as you're you know maturing, as you're growing up, mm -hmm. as you're aging and forming mm -hmm. life for yourself, when do you say, I want to reconnect with my sisters? At what age mm -hmm. is that? Well, I was 43. Now, let me backtrack. I searched from them ever since I learned the alphabet. Because we had phone books back then, Father. They were yellow. I mean, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have all of this. But I knew my last name was Lane. And so I would search through the lanes in the phone book. We had this old rotary phone connected to the wall. And when my foster parents were out of the home, I would look up numbers and dial them as best I could. And when someone would answer, I would say, I would ask for one of my sisters because I really believed I could just call them. And they would come and pick me up. But of course, I didn't have the right numbers or anything like that. But I never gave up trying to look for them. So. And so you do end up fine. You you look for them as you uh -huh. just at the age of 43. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what was that process like? How did you actually begin that? How do you search for them? 
Was it through mm. ancestry DNA? Or <laughs> I'm old, Father. So we're going to go. I actually was 46. There were 43 years in between we, the family breaking up and we fought. So I was actually 46. Okay. And there was no DNA testing. There was no internet, let alone <laughs> ancestry.com. You know, there was nothing. And what you could do was write to uh, show hosts like Oprah, who had reunions on their shows often. I wrote her, but sadly, <laughs> <laughs> she ignored me, but that's okay. I still love Oprah. So then, then you know, I got on adoption registries, lost family registries, but it was all done by mail. And it was all, you know, I hired a private detective eventually to try to find them. Now I had no social security numbers, no married last names nothing. So um, they did come up with a last known address for a sister. And it was one of the twins. I had a set of sisters that were twins. And they said, we don't have a phone number or anything. You try writing a letter. So father, I sat down to write a letter to a sister. I didn't even know who it was going to, but, you know, I don't know who I'm writing to, but you're one of my sisters. I've been told, and it would mean everything to me if we could connect, you know, and they call me Barbie Sue to this day. So I, I said, you know, this is your sister, Barbie Sue, please call, what have you. Letter came back a week later, no known address. And I mean, I was so angry that, you know, I felt like for a little while, I was just going to give up. So I threw the letter in the closet and said, I can't do this anymore. I pursued my education, which was later in life than, than most. And, you know, pursued my career and raised my kids and got all involved in that. But always in the back of my mind, I'd be at a grocery store somewhere. I'd see someone, well, she kind of looks like me, I wonder. Come to find out, I did have a sister that shopped at the same grocery store. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it could have been her for all I know at this point. So that's that story. Yeah. So you begin. So then you actually do find like what's mm -hmm. the first step? <laughs> so you mentioned you know kind of doing the the reaching out to different adoption agencies. But yeah. so when's the initial contact that you mm -hmm. do you find one of them obviously first or? No, um, this is um, this was an event. I'm a highly spiritual person, and this event took on a very spiritual realm for me. When I just decided I couldn't do it anymore, um, I was packing for a summer vacation. We always took, I would take the, my kids to uh, Bethany Beach in Delaware for the month of August when they were younger. But I'd bring things from the kitchen because for that length of time, I needed some of my own stuff to cook with. And I'm packing it all together. And Father, it was like somebody hit me over the head and said, if you wanted to find your sisters, why didn't you ask? So I knew then, I just knew in three days they were going to find me. And on the third day, they did find me. So it wasn't you finding them, it was them finding they, you. After all of that searching, yeah, it, it was in a timing of its own. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. So mm -hmm. there's there's 11 of you total. So had the other 10 found each other? And they're like, there's one more. There's Barbie Sue that's left. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, so they had all drifted. Let's just put it that way. Um, my eldest sister adopted one of my younger sisters, Pam. They finally let her 
take my little sister Pam in at the age of nine because she bought a bigger house, which is just so ridiculous. But anyway, um, and my next eldest sister was in Kentucky. Some of them had drifted to where you wouldn't hear for them or couldn't find them for several years, the older sisters told me. But then they, if they really, really pushed it, maybe they could find them. So my sister Ellen was wanted to do just that. She wanted to call the ones where she thought she knew where they were and did they know where another one was? And they were gonna she was gonna try to get them together, except for Kay and I, which she called the lost babies. So she was talking about this with a friend of hers. And uh, it was actually a friend of her son who said, what do you know about them? And she told them the last place she knew that we were, which was where we ended up growing up, the Peshota family. And he said, I'm going to go see what I can do. And he went to St. Louis. Now, he he describes himself as a professional criminal and that he can find anything you need to find. And lo and behold, however he did it, the story goes, he bribed somebody. I don't know. He came back with my sister Kay's phone number. And of course, we knew where each other were. And that's how that happened. So you tell me. Wow. So you had that little premonition three days and yeah. you know, you'll, you'll meet them or whatever. Yeah. So, um, when, when you all reunite, is there a big family reunion? Mm. What's that whole experience uh, like? The very next day, those of us who could flew to St. Louis to reunite. Uh, and there are no words to describe that. There, there just aren't. I mean, <laughs> it, it's like everything you knew to be true finally resonated that it was true. Everything horrible that happened in between just kind of melted away. And when I first flung myself literally into the arms of my older sisters, I felt rebirth. I knew their smell. I, I, I knew their touch. I mean, and everybody crying and all this togetherness. And um, then we planned in September, which was like two weeks later, all of us to get together in Kansas at one sister's house. And we've been together as much as we can, as often as we can ever since. Mm. We have lost five, you know, have passed over. Um, but I, they're with us when we get together. I know that. Sure. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. incredible. So mm -hmm. what year was this reunion? 97, 1997. So, yeah, now we're in, uh, uh, we're recording this in 2023. People are going right. to be listening to this in 2024. So you have all of these years now yeah. of, of knowing them. So yeah. um, what's it been like over these decades now that you've been reunited? Mm. Like, uh, are there ongoing uh, reunions do you call each other often uh yeah what, what's yes the, yes yeah. and yes and yes all yeah. of it we're, we're together like we are making up for lost time we get together we're like kids you know we just play games we be silly we dress up when we don't need to I mean we have recaptured our childhoods in ways I can't even explain now <laughs> I think there's another aspect of the story that, you know, mm -hmm. people who might be listening, and of course they can read the full version of your story in your mm -hmm. memoir, mm -hmm. Broken Water, an mm -hmm. extraordinary true story. But is there any follow-up to find your biological mother, the mother who abandoned you? Is that, mm -hmm. do you know how her story ever ended? Or is that kind of just like one of those big question marks? 
No, it's not a question mark. I know the full history of my mother and my father now. My mother and my father are both deceased. I did have the benefit of visiting both of their graves, and there's something unbelievable that occurs mm. when you visit a grave site. I, I can't explain it. I had no recollect recollection or attachment or feelings toward my biological mother. When my sisters, we were at a reunion in Kansas where she's buried, brought me to her grave, I couldn't stop sobbing. This was my mother. It all just, you know, fell into place. The same for my father. Interestingly, my father's buried in Memphis. The first time I saw his grave, he didn't have a headstone. Mm -hmm. I felt nothing. It was just really weird. So I bought him one and knew what he would want to say on it would be he's the best guitar picker in the, in Mississippi. He was uh, kind of played gigs at local bars and played the guitar, every instrument known to man. Well, I went back to visit it last summer with that stone there and, and the feeling at that gravesite. I don't know. I wanted to lay down on it. I didn't because I thought my husband would, <laughs> but you know, I could feel that presence, that, that forgiveness, that honoring of who, who these people were. And they lived very hard lives, father. They died early of cancer from smoking and drinking and, you know. Yeah. I, you know, listeners of DNA discoveries know that I have uh, interviewed, you know, we've had, this will be our episode 31, right? So there's three mm. other episodes before you. And mm -hmm. a lot of times I will ask people, well, did you go to the grave? Even mm -hmm. if you know, they find out they've been looking for their biological mother and then they find a sibling or a relative and they find right. out died and I'm like right. you go to the grave because for me I I just know there's something there so I just right. I love that you volunteered that I didn't yeah. get that from you that uh that you just said there's something powerful about visiting the grave because yes. I yeah. sense that, you know as as a Roman Catholic and as someone that visits graves of saints and mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. uh holy mm -hmm. men and women like I sense something there and yeah so it's true for our own family so yeah. so yeah. you some sense of healing and yeah i guess you it, it was you having to forgive them right like yeah you forgive your mother at yeah. that visit to her grave yes and i didn't even know that was an issue for me till i stood by her grave because i just felt nothing for her you know nothing but there i surely did didn't i so. yeah i would think that you know throughout your childhood probably you had that experience of like she mm -hmm. left me and now I'm with this family. And so, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and knowing, yeah, just as you've shared kind of mm -hmm. the trauma that that brought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so it makes sense that you would come to that point of having to forgive right yeah. there in that moment. So yeah. yeah. Did, did your other siblings, did they reunite with her before she died? Did anybody talk with her? Like mm -hmm. what, what were you thinking when you left or uh, so, was there on that end? There were a few sisters who, um, I had a sister, Annie. I mean, what a character, just so fun. She should have been a stand-up comic. I'm not kidding. But anyway, she ran away from the orphanage a couple of times. Her experience there wasn't so great. And she was street savvy enough at the age of 12 or whatever to find our biological mother. So she connected with our biological mothers who pulled a terrible trick on her, brought her back to the orphanage. She said, go pack your things and I'll bring you home with me. While she was packing, she took off. So Annie ran away again and found our mother. 
And that time, my mother had two other babies, two that we don't know where they are. And so she kept Annie to kind of help. Do you know what I mean? So Annie stayed with our mother for many years. And when our mother was dying, Annie took care of her. She cared for her and my father through their final days, which is just amazing to me that she was able to do that. Yeah, for sure. It's like full circle healing, etc. Yeah, Yeah, there's there's no words, I I guess, to like describe, you know, that experience or to even process that, you know, right right away in this moment. So because all eleven of us girls were terribly abused. All eleven of us, you know, how do how do you forgive a mother for that? And she did. I mean, many did, many have, a couple didn't. But um, many have come to peace with that in their own way, which is, I think, unique for everyone. Yeah. So we are recording this right before Christmas. Yes. Uh, do the Do you guys spend time together at Christmas? Well, we all have huge families. So what we do is pick a time before Christmas that there, we try not to miss any child's birthday, grandkids, great grandkids even. And we get together and celebrate uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving at the same time. So that way we have that experience. And we do Christmas trees. We make ornaments. We give gifts. We sing carols. We do hot cocoa. We do the whole thing. Um, and yes, we do. We're, we're very, very, very bonded. That's beautiful. You mm-hmm. mentioned that when that one sister went to find the mother, the biological mother, uh, that there were two other babies and yeah. you, you guys have, or I, I shouldn't say you guys, you gals, you ladies, That's okay. <laughs> uh, you ladies have never connected with them. You've never no. found them. So the story goes that they were adopted as infants. And my eldest sister, Ruth, who, who felt so responsible for all these babies, um, was approached by a relative of the father or whatever, and said, we will adopt these two babies and raise them as our own if you never, ever approach us. So she promised to do that so that she would keep these two babies out of more foster care. Um, She couldn't take them. She didn't have a big enough house because she also had six kids of her own by then. Okay. So um, we've talked about this in our sisterhood with DNA testing. We could probably find them today. But here's the thing. What if they don't even know they were adopted? What if they have this whole family from infancy, their mother, their father, their siblings, their whatever, that they think are really theirs? And then we come along and say, oh, you have no idea (laughs) who your parents were and where your siblings. And one of them's a boy, father, one brother in this whole 13 Mm. sibling batch. And we decided... Uh, not to pursue it. And our hope is if they know their history, this book will flush them out because it's, it's getting read. It's getting spread. It's, it's, which is the goal is to raise awareness for this kind of thing. And, you know, if, if it's supposed to be, you know, we'll discern on that and, and would embrace them obviously uh, with such joy, but we don't want to crush them either. No, that's very sensitive uh, on your uh, on all of your parts, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So if it's meant to be that you meet in this life, 
it will happen, you know? Well, it happened with the rest of us. Right? Yeah. 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 I think about my own uh, family story of finding family that my mother uh, was put up for adoption back in 1966. Mm. That three years later, the birth mother had another daughter put up for adoption. These two children then never knew each other. And so both of them died. And I could, you know, as a believer, I can only imagine that there was like a heavenly reunion. So if you don't meet this yeah. side, you're going to uh, meet the yeah. Meet now, yeah. Right? You'll meet on the next one for sure. Yeah, definitely. So, wow, these this is such an extraordinary truth. <laughs> as you subtitled your book Broken Water. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I you know, I I have a feeling that lifetime will approach you at some point and want to make a television movie about this. Has that happened yet? No, anybody want um, movie rights? I've had a few nibbles, and and you know, I always we are, in our sisterhood we talk about it together. Are you ready for that to be on the big screen? If that would happen, and you know, we're we're talking about it, we're thinking about it, and and we all, all eleven of us, um, when this book idea came into fruition a couple of sisters asked me to write it now I was never a writer I mean I wrote theses I've written workbooks things like that but not an author so they asked me I love them so much I couldn't say no right I will I will do it the best I can and then gave me an opportunity that I'm so grateful for I spent one-on-one -on -one time with each sister one-on-one -on -one. and as providence would have it a few of them I was able to spend time with days before they died, either of a heart attack or, you know, various that I would have missed if I hadn't been pursuing this, this manuscript. So it took me 15 years to gather all their stories because it's a sensitive topic. And I had to come to terms with their own healing and how they would tell their story. And we had a path. That's what I'm getting to. If one said no, it would die there. You know, it's all for one, one for all with us. <laughs> so, you know, we're like that. So anything we do forward, there's six of us left and all of our votes matter. And sometimes we even pretend like the angel sisters are chiming in, which I think they actually are haunting us sometimes <laughs> <laughs> in their funny way. But um, so I don't know. It could be, you know, it would be a matter of us deciding that it would help enough people and based on the emails I've been receiving and, and the, you know, the messages on Facebook or whatever, it's helping a lot of people come to terms with their own histories. And that's the goal, isn't it? That's kind of why I think we're all here. Yeah, it sounds and it is a, a beautiful story uh, you, of your life of kind of how all of these bad things, but yet how there can still be a happy ending in yeah. the sense of your reuniting of being yeah. together again, et cetera. So uh, your book is Broken Water, An Extraordinary True Story. And mm -hmm. uh, people can find it. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Everywhere. Uh, yeah, anywhere. Bookstores, yeah, wherever. So I'll link to it in the show notes. But Thank it, you. There, um, are, how can people learn more about you? Do you have a website? Uh, yeah. I do. Okay. I barbaralane.info because I feel like I'm an open book after this book anyway barbaralane.info um they can contact me that way by email call me 
I try to be as available. It may take me a little while to get back, but I get back to everyone. Well, that's wonderful. Well, this has been a, a really delightful conversation. I know it's not necessarily a story of finding family through DNA discoveries. <laughs> I think it was a story worth telling. And yeah. uh, we even brought in that DNA piece because, you know, as we yeah. talk about it, you know, you could find those two lost siblings, but right, right. out of respect for their history, you're not. So, so right. I think it's an important element uh, to take away. It uh, is important to think about. Part. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people out there, you know, oh, I want to find my family. And so sometimes uh, there there are individuals that receive like uh, ancestry DNA test kit for Christmas. Like people right. are getting them right now. Right. And I always just caution. I say, are you ready to find out dark secrets in your family right. life that you've never known? Like, right. you know, you love your dad. You admire him so much. But what have you found out? He was on a business trip and. Arizona and you have a <laughs> sister or something, you know? Right, right. Um, so, so I always caution people. So I, I really appreciate that element too, as we talked about DNA and the sensitivity there. So um, okay. yeah, I, I'm grateful that your email came across my, uh, my way. My I email. am too, father. Very grateful. Yeah. So we could have this story and I encourage people to head on over to Amazon or wherever you buy your books, Barnes and Noble, local bookstores, look for broken water an extraordinary true story. I think it's the it, it'll make for a great winter read, at least where I live, lots of snow. Uh, I think yes. it, you'll just become a part of the story, wanting to, to know more and more right. than what we've talked about in this short interview today. So thanks so much, Barbara, for being Thank you. Thank you, Father. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed listening to Barbara's story you will want to pick up a copy of her book from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy your books. I've linked the book in the show notes. If her story inspired you, consider sharing the episode on your social media or texting a link to your friends. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast and follow the show on Facebook at DNA Discoveries Pod. I've linked the page in the show notes. Finally, I would be so honored if you would consider sharing your story with the DNA Discoveries audience, reach out via email or on the contact form, which are linked in the show notes. Thanks for being a listener. I'll be back with you next month with another DNA Discovery and story of finding family.